Well, I, you had like this great intro, friend of, you know, how are you guys doing and all that stuff, but you know, whatever, we'll just jump right into it. Guys, okay, I'm Zach. If we don't know each other super well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret of my life, okay? All of my dearest friends know this about me, and this is it. I love fiction, like stories, novels, literature. You know, I, I love fiction. I eat this stuff up. I read it all the time, okay? I'm talking... Like Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, the Pendragon series. Anyone know who Billy Pendragon is? No one read him? That's fine. Okay, Artemis Fowl, a little bit more popular. Artemis Fowl, Aragon, Harry Potter. Okay, Harry Potter, yeah, we know that. Okay, fiction. I love fiction. I love the worlds that these authors make, and I love just kind of soaking my mind and ingesting kind of what they've created and kind of try to put myself in their little world that they've, that they've made. I, I think it's fascinating. I love the genre fiction. But I also love fiction because of the heroes, okay? So I'm like talking, you know, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, one of the Dunedain Rangers from the north, blessed with long life from the Numenorians. okay? We're going like there. I like Harry Potter. He's kind of cool. He has glasses and a scar on his forehead. I also have a scar on my forehead. You just can't see it. It's like above my hairline. So we're kind of similar, Okay. Um, heroes, they're great. Like, and, and if you kind of went through like the high school, public school program, like I had the fortune to, um, you would probably study this thing called the hero's journey, right? Like all of you English majors out there are like, yes, In hero's journey, let's go, let's bring it around. Okay, the hero's journey. What is the hero's journey? Well, it's basically like this really long thing about how you make a fiction tale. Let me just break it down really like simply for you. Basically, there's a hero, and he has like a call to adventure, right? Whether it's like his family got attacked by something or some evil guy did something bad or whatever happened to him, he has like this call to adventure saying, I need to go and like do something about this problem. And then he gets, or he or she kind of gets like this, this aid of some sort, like there's like an artifact that they find, like Deathly Hollows, you know, or like they receive friends or they, they receive like even like divine intervention at times to help them overcome the task that's laid in front of them, and eventually through trials and tribulations in like the, what they call like the secret world or like the spiritual realm, they come back and are able to thwart and kill the big bad evil guy and save the day, okay? And I actually love this genre of fiction. I love that story kind of archetype so much um, that I play Dungeons and Dragons, okay? Yeah, I, I said it, I said it. I play Dungeons and Dragons. Not only do I play Dungeons and Dragons, I'm a dungeon master, okay? A dungeon master. So here's my job as the dungeon master. Similar to the authors of the novels, my job is to create a world for my players to live in. So I make like the barkeep or I make like the tavern maid or like the evil guys that they're killing. They're going around in the hills in the forest and killing gnolls and stuff. And they get like loot, right? They get like special items that make them stronger and they get more beefy and then they kill bigger people. And eventually they like kill like a demigod or something, you know, and it's like really epic. I live for that stuff, man. I eat it up. Here's the thing. You don't actually have to love fiction to love heroes, though. Okay, if you're like sitting here and I'm like rambling on about this stuff, and you're like, ah, oh, that's not really scratching my itch. That's totally fine. Because heroes can be found everywhere, not just in fiction. That's just the way I prefer to interact with these heroes. But, for example, like today, a very common example of people that we would call heroes in our world, in our reality, are healthcare workers, right? We say like, man, those guys are on the front lines, they're, they're putting in the hours day in and day out, and they're, they're serving us for the common good. Those guys are heroes. We say that about the scientists, right? We say that about our teachers, the firemen, the police, 
Okay, bringing it like one circle kind of closer to home, like we say that about our families, like our grandparents, our parents, our dearest friends, like they've, they've, they've come to us in our moments of need. We wouldn't necessarily go up to my best friend and say, you know what, man, you're like, you're my hero. It seems kind of weird. Maybe I would do it, I don't know. But what's true is like, just because you don't have to call them the hero, like they functionally are, like the people that come to you when you need to move, right? <laughs> There's a saying, like if you wanna know who your friends are, like go move and then you'll see who your friends are because they're the ones that are gonna help you. Everyone else is, is a sham, they're a liar. They, they, you think that they're your friends, but they won't even help you move. It's so weird. Okay, those are people that we call heroes. But I think if we took a, like, a step back and kind of looked at it from a different perspective, we don't like heroes necessarily for just what they do. Right? The fictional heroes that I love are the ones that always save the day, right? And that's an awesome thing to do. And for the heroes in our world today, they're the ones that are trying to make this world a better place for us to live in, and that's all fine and good. But I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, is that we don't even, like, we don't just only love what our heroes can do. We actually want to be like them. Right? Like, there's, there's something about heroes that when we see them, whether it's their talent or their prowess, or their brilliance, or their beauty, or their ability to throw a football. Like, we want, we want to have that, right? They seem to be able to do whatever those things are more than us, but more than that, it's the status that they get because of it, right? Like, they're the, they're the people that society's looking at and saying, be like that. Be like Patrick Mahomes. Be like Tom Brady. Be like Dwayne Wade. I don't know. There are these heroes, and we don't just want what they can do, but we want what their lifestyle is like as well. We want to be like them. And this is all like fine and good up to this point. But the tension I've been kind of sitting in as I've been thinking about this sermon is we have to like acknowledge because we know ourselves and we know that if we're being real with ourselves, like our heroes are just human, right? And humans are sinful. And this needs to matter to us tonight. I'm not just trying to like throw like the sin card way early in the sermon. This matters tonight because we need to realize God actually cares about who we call our heroes. It matters to him. Who we look up to in life, who we want to be like, the life that we want to achieve for ourselves as modeled by other people, our heroes, matters to God. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at King David's life, and we're going to figure out kind of some answers to this question. What is God's criteria for heroes? Who does God define as heroes among us? Because if we're being honest with ourselves, like our, our heroes, like they, they disappoint us sometimes, don't they? And it's not a matter of if, but when. Like the, the all-star athlete gets an OWI and then their whole career is ruined. Um, you know, the pastors even that we tend to kind of hold up on this platter end up making grave errors with their life and they let us down. They let us down and it leaves us wondering, what, what do we even do next about that? Like, how do we even process that? What does God have to say about that, because if we believe God at his word, as he says in Romans 8, 
that he's working everything in our lives for our good. What is he doing to us in that moment when we're jaded and disappointed with the people that are supposed to be our heroes? So to do that, we're going to look at three milestones of King David's life. We're going to look at his anointing, which is his origin story in the hero's journey. We're going to look at Goliath, which is the great battle that he fights, the enemy toppled. But then we're going to look at Bathsheba. For those of you that don't really know what that means or what any of this means or you didn't grow up in the church or anything, basically what I'm going to say is Bathsheba is the moment that David, as a hero figure in his nation, lets his people down severely. Okay, so let's go ahead and zoom in to David's anointing or his origin story, and that's in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and chapter 16, 6 through 12. Okay, I have the scripture like up there. I actually don't have time to read it to you guys tonight because I'm already 10 minutes into this thing and I've got like way more stuff to get through. So here's what happens in 1 Samuel 13, 14. Okay, God is basically confronting Saul, who's the current king of Israel at the time. He says, hey, Saul, I'm actually going to de- like depose you as a king. I have completely rejected you. And I'm going to bring this new king into Israel because he is a man after my own heart. Okay, we've talked about like Abraham and Moses and Joseph and some other Old Testament figures, and they've all kind of held this title like servant of the Lord, right? Like this really high title of being called God's servant. But David takes that one step further, and God says, no, this man is actually after my own heart. He's not just my servant. He's one of my loyal friends. He's devoted to me in everything that he does. But you, Saul, you are not. So I'm going to remove you from the kingship, and I'm going to install this king. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, you see uh, Samuel the prophet. That's why it's called 1 Samuel. It's not about, I mean, it's mostly about David, but Samuel the prophet wrote it. That's why it's called 1 Samuel. But he's, he's in, um, he basically gets like this call from God to go to Bethlehem, right? This like kind of podunk town in the land of Judah, which is southern Israel. And he goes to this, the house of Jesse. And he sits down in front of Jesse and he says, hey, bring out all of your sons. God's telling me that one of them will be king. And so God, like, brings out his oldest and his wisest son, his strongest son, and God looks at him and says, no, I've rejected this man. And Samuel's kind of sitting there like, wait, really? Like, he's the firstborn son. This is a big deal. What do you mean? He says, well, Samuel, you got to see like I see. I don't look at people's outward appearances. I look at their heart. And so the story goes on. He eventually finds David in a field. He wasn't even brought to Samuel the prophet with all the rest of the sons. He was just out in the, like, in the middle of the field tending to the sheep. He gets brought to Samuel and he anoints him as king saying, David, someday you are going to be the king of Israel. Then he leaves. Not because of his stature or because of his appearance, but because of his heart. So point number one tonight is God actually wants us to choose our heroes based on like their heart and not their appearance or ability. Okay, oftentimes, like, I get convicted of this when I think about it, because when I think about all of the, like, sports icons that I actually know, because I'm not into sports, but the only ones I hear about are the best of the best, right? Like, Tom Brady's a household name because he's Tom Brady, because he's the best of all time, right? He's the GOAT. But does God actually care about Tom Brady being the GOAT, like, the best quarterback to have ever lived? Probably not as much as he cares about how Tom Brady treats his family. Probably not as much as Tom Brady... Um, how he conducts his finances and what he gives to and what he spends his money on. God's actually way more concerned about those things than his ability to throw a football. 
Okay, so that's point number one. God looks at the heart, but we often get caught up with our heroes looking at their ability or their appearance. And we do this like in church too, right? Like we look at pastors or preachers and we say, well, I like this person's preaching, but I'm, I'm not like a huge fan of this person's preaching. Or man, like I love how this, this pastor like texts me or like he asks me how I'm doing, but this one doesn't. And I would, I would say that might be fine and good, but I think you should actually care more about how your pastors treat their wives. We maybe should probably care more about the way that they treat their families and their money more than just how well they can deliver a sermon on Thursday nights or Sunday mornings. God cares about the heart. That's important. Next episode of David's life, we're going to look at Goliath, right? This is his battle. This is like his trial. This is his defining moment on whether or not his character is proven true. So that's in 1 Samuel 17, 16, 26, and 45. That's like the whole chapter of 16. Again, I'm just going to fly by these, but write those down and, and read them later this week. Basically, this big dude named Goliath is like, bring me a man that we may fight. And you're just sitting like, okay. But the thing about this guy is like his... His, like, armor weighed, like, 400 pounds, and, like, his, his helmet weighed, like, 100 pounds, and his shield weighed, like, 100 pounds, and his spear weighed, like, 80 pounds, and he's, he's just, like, this massive, like, nine-foot-tall, rippling muscle. Like, he sounds like someone in the Bible, like, the way the Bible's describing him. It sounds like some, I, I would, how, eh, how I would describe some of those monsters that I, like, pit against my players in Dungeons and Dragons. Like, there's a giant, and he has, like, bulbous green skin and thick, gangly yellow teeth, you know? And it's like, he's roaring with you at you, and he roll initiative, you know? And then you go and, like, fight them and stuff. It's fun. That's, like, what the Bible's doing. It's, like, setting up, this is a big, bad dude. And everyone in Israel is, like, completely scared of this guy. But David, after 40 days of him kind of going before Israel, like, comes up and sees him and says, man, this guy's actually not fighting against us. He's actually blaspheming the living God. So I'll tell you what, I'll go fight this guy because I know God's going to protect me. And I'm going to go out and we're going to see what happens. And everyone's like, David, you're an idiot. You're so stupid. Do you know how tall this guy is? Do you know, like, he's been a warrior since his youth and you're just a youth. He's like, okay, whatever. He goes and, like, tries to put on armor. He's, like, too small for it because he's a kid, basically. He, like, goes and picks up some rocks from a river and it's like, okay, I'm ready. Walks up to Goliath, whoosh, hits him right in the head. Kills him, one shot, one kill. It's that easy. Kills Goliath, one fell swoop. And he takes none of the glory for himself. He says, God actually delivers me at this time. God's the one that shows up. So point number two of how we look at our heroes is God shows us that our heroes, they, they ought to take bold steps of faith for the good of those around them. They should take risks and put themselves in peril for the benefit of other people. Like David, he didn't have to offer to kill Goliath. He could have looked at him the same way the rest of Israel was and said, yeah, I think I'll pass. Maybe it would work out. I'm not sure. Instead, he just says, no, I know God will protect me. I know that this matters to God, and I know that this matters to these people, and I'm going to see what I can do. And so up to this point in David's life, he's really done a really good job for himself. He's, he's been anointed as future king. He's not quite there yet, but he'll get there. He's taken down one of the most gruesome foes of Israel in history, this big bad Goliath ogre boy. 
But then we hit Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is like this kind of gut punch for us in the narrative. Because at this point in the hero's journey, David should have everything that he could ever need. He should have already won the battle, and he should have been able to just have, you know, to be, to be happily ever after. Like how all the fiction tales end, right? Like they lived happily ever after. That, that should have been the story of David's life, but it wasn't because of this incident. So in 2 Samuel, you'll see in chapter 11 and 12, this narrative of David as he has finally become king. So he's king over Israel. He is still leading a very successful military campaign throughout the land, conquering the nations around them and and kind of increasing the land that Israel owns. But instead of actually going out with his armies, he's decided just to sit at home instead. Now, what kind of a king does that? Like, no king in ancient history would have just sat at home while their armies went out to go fight for them. They would be on the front lines. That's, that's what it meant to be king, is you, you put your life on the line. So something has changed in David since the Goliath incident. He's no longer on the front lines fighting for his people, but he's sitting at home. And while he's strolling on his porch one afternoon, he happens to look upon a woman that's bathing. Like, a particularly beautiful woman is the way that the scripture defines it. And he, he goes to his assistants, and he's like, hey, who's, who's that girl? And they're like, well, isn't this Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And he's like, well, I don't know, but, but bring her here. I want to meet her. And so they bring her to him. And then he has sex with her. And then she gets pregnant. And David, at this point, when he finds out that she's pregnant, is freaking out because he knows that his sin will be revealed eventually. It's only a matter of time. So what does he do? He's plotting, he's scheming in his chambers probably some night. He says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring Uriah back from the battlefield and have him sleep with his wife. So that way, when they have the kid, it's not that weird. And that way, the sin that I have will kind of get swept under the rug and they'll have this kid. It'll be my bastard son, but at least it's not my problem. So David brings Uriah back. He brings him back. But Uriah refuses to go back to his home and to be with his wife because he's saying, you brought me back here, but my brothers are still dying on the battlefield this very day. Why should I go and enjoy the luxuries? And you can imagine David's like rage in that moment when he used to be like that. When he used to be the one that was putting his neck out for other people, but instead Uriah is saying, no, I will not dishonor my brothers that are dying by the day for your kingdom and I'm not going to partake and enjoying my wife. I'm going to sleep outside. And so David eventually sends him back to the front lines, but he does it with a little envelope in his hand or like a letter or a scroll. And those, that scroll that Uriah delivered to his commanding officer was actually the orders to kill him. He told the commanding officer, hey, when the battle gets fierce, when it's the most in the thick of it that it is, pull out all of the troops except for Uriah, and have him die on the battlefield. And that's what happens. They're in the battle, Uriah gets left behind, and he dies. So then what does David do? Well, he just takes Bathsheba as his wife. It's fine, she's my wife. It'll be okay. I already have like 10 other ones, whatever. I'll just take another. 
And at this point, Nathan the prophet comes before David, and he gives him, like, this little parable. Now, we know, like, Jesus has, like, taught in parables, right? Like, they're, they're, like, they're kind of like these small allegorical stories that have a lot of symbols in them. And he says, hey, David, think about this. I saw two shepherds today, and one of them was really poor, and all he had actually was, was just one little tiny lamb. And that's all he had, but he loved it. He cherished it. He, he brought it up and he raised it and he took care of it with all that he had because he loved this lamb. But then there was a rich shepherd that had flocks and herds of, of sheep and goats and whatever else that shepherds maintain, I don't know. But he, he has this vast wealth and this vast power and he sees the one lamb that the other shepherd has and he takes it from him. And right when Nathan says that, he says, cursed is that man, he is evil, he should die on the spot. And then Nathan flips the script on him and says, actually, David, that's you. That's what you've done with Uriah. That's what you've done with Bathsheba. You've robbed this man of all that he had and took his life. And so part three, as we're trying to figure out who our heroes are in this life, on this world, is that God shows us that even the best of us are still sinful and we are still unable to save ourselves let alone you as well. You're like, that's kind of counterintuitive. I thought we were trying to figure out how to get a hero, not how to tell a false one. Well, here's what I'm saying is that even the best king that ever lived, and that sounds really bad to say right now, but David was actually the best king in Israel's history. That's true. And so if that's true, that should really give us a chill down our spines about the rest of them. He was the best king in Israel, and yet even he fell short. He failed us. He disappointed us. So, like, let's, let's sit in that for a moment. Because I think this has actually happened to all of us in some way or another. Whether it was a parent or a pastor or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or just a friend, we've had people in our lives that we've laid our burdens on, that we've been vulnerable with, that we've revealed parts about ourselves that we've never told anyone, and they've, they've come up short. We've tried to make them our heroes, and we found out that they were unable to carry our burdens because they actually can't carry their own. That's what's true for David. That's what's true for me. That's what's true for you. The friends that we thought we would have forever end up moving or leaving or end in bitterness the relationship that we put so desperately in our lives fail. Our pastors, unfortunately, some of them will end up embezzling money or committing adultery. These are all realities of life. But there might be a different crowd in the room tonight where you're saying, yeah, actually, this whole hero nonsense, it doesn't really make a lot of sense with me. It doesn't really jive with me, and here's why. Because I've gotten to the point in my life where I know I can't trust anyone and I actually need to be the hero of my own story. And if that's you, I empathize with that. That used to be my story too. When I grew up, most of my adolescent life, I thought I needed to be my own hero, that relying on someone else was weak that only the strong survive. And if there's any problems in my life or in the world around me, it's directly because of me and I need to do something about it, not anyone else. 
And for both crowds in the night, whether you're saying, I've had a hero disappoint me, or you're saying, I need to be the hero of my own story and I can't figure out how, we can all agree on the fact that humanity actually isn't a great thing to rely on. It's not a firm foundation for you to place your life, your hope on. And so from David's life, we can see that even the greatest king in history comes up short. He can't even save himself from his own sin. And God wants that to really drive home. But what if David was never meant to be the hero of the story? What if David, what if he had a hero that he was actually just trying to be like and failed at times, but realized that he couldn't actually save himself? That what if David had a hero that never abandoned him and never let him down? What if that was true? And so we've gone through the kind of hero's journey for David. But let's, let's go through the hero's journey of Jesus, who David would say, this man is my hero. Okay, David had an origin story. Jesus has an origin story. Let's take a look. John 1, 1 through 5, and verse 14. It goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. David had a birth date and a death date. He had an expiration of his life. But Jesus Christ has always existed. He's always existed. He's existed from eternity past to eternity forward. He's always existed. His origin story is that he is no, he doesn't have an origin story. He is the originator of life and life itself. And the part where it comes important for us to know that is when he incarnates himself on earth, where he comes to dwell with us like a man, where he adopts the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he, he emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus' origin story. He came to seek and save the lost. And like David, he also had a battle to face. See, Goliath spent 40 days tempting the Israelites into fighting him, saying, bring me a man that we may fight. Similarly, Jesus in the wilderness also had a bout, not with Goliath, not with just a man, but with the very Satan himself. Now, I read the, or I kind of paraphrased kind of the D&D description of Goliath, and he seemed really scary, right? But the thing about Satan is that he's a much greater foe than Goliath could have ever been. Okay, Goliath was a big, scary dude, but the Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion waiting to devour anyone that crosses his path. It views him as the father of lies, the prince of the power of the air that sweeps us all under false teaching and confusion and hate. 
It labels him as the accuser, the one that sits in your room at night and tells you about everything wrong that you ever did in your entire life and makes you feel bad about it and makes you feel like that there's no hope for it ever. That's who Satan is. He's far more powerful than Goliath could have ever been. He was heaven's most glorious angel fallen from grace, become a warped and twisted being bent on killing you. That's who Satan is. But Jesus endured this temptation from Satan for 40 days straight with no food, no water, and at the end of it said, you know what, Satan, I'm getting a little bit tired of you. Why don't you just go away? And immediately he flees the scene. How crazy is that? Who could have ever done that? Who could have sat face to face with the father of lies himself and came out on the other side, not only alive, but winning? What kind of hero is this? But similarly to David, Jesus also had a downfall, right? The cross. And there's no scripture references there because they're at the end of basically every, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the four gospels. You can just flip to the end of those. All four of them will tell you about the crucifixion of Jesus, how terrible it was. But the thing that's ironic about David, comparing David to Jesus, is that David's downfall was because of his sin, but Jesus' downfall was because of yours, because of mine. He never sinned, but he came to save you from your sins. He was actually able to carry our burdens because he had none himself. The only burden that Jesus carries today is the one that he put on himself for your sake so that you could be saved. That's Jesus on the cross. It's not because Jesus failed as a man after God's own heart and slipped up in sin. It's because Jesus in coming to earth and then living a perfect life and dying on the cross was showing you to what end the heart of God would go after man. Humans aren't the hero of the story. God is. He became poor so that you might become rich in his blessing. And it eventually kind of boils down to this. We're talking about heroes. We're trying to figure out which ones are the ones for us. And here's what I'm going to say to you, and it's really bold, and I don't care. If the hero in your life, the person you're looking up to, doesn't point you towards Jesus, they're not your hero. They're false. Because they are unable to carry your burdens, and they are unable to lead you to the person who can He can save you like he saved David, like he saved Joseph and Moses and Abraham. In fact, in Luke chapter uh, 24, verses 25 through 27, Jesus, he's talking to his disciples and he calls them fools. He says, oh, foolish ones, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said, the point of David's life isn't that you should go and kill the Goliath in your life. The point of David's life is that you need to come to me to take care of it for you. I can save you. The whole Bible and everything in it is about me. 
And David, he spent his best, or he spent his life trying his best for God and came up short. And the, honest, like the reality for us guys is we will too. We will too. We will let people down. We will let ourselves down. But if Jesus can save a man that slept with a man's wife and then killed him, I think he can save us too. And you know, David, he spent a ton of his life writing about this true hero of the story, Jesus, and kind of his dependence on him. He never said, I'm the hero of the story. We've just kind of projected that onto David to our misfortune. But here's what David says about Jesus. I want to close tonight with Psalm 54 and just pray this over you guys. So bow your heads with me. Psalm 54, it says, O God, save me by your name. God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might, not mine. God, hear my prayer. Give ears to the words of my mouth because I need you to hear me. Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life, but they are not set on God. Look, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life, and he will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will offer sacrifice to you. I give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked on in triumph on my enemies. Jesus, we come to you tonight weary and, and tired from trying to be either the heroes of our own story or the hero in someone else's. God, we confess we've put burdens on ourselves that only you were meant to carry. Would you forgive us? Jesus, would you reveal yourself to people here who don't know you? God, that you actually want to save them, that you are a God after man's heart. And that by your power, you can seek and save the lost. Jesus, we want to honor you with our lives. We want to glorify you tonight with our worship. And we pray that our singing would be um, good for you to hear. God, we know you hear us. And we want you to be lifted high tonight. It's in your name.